Hey everyone, I'm Katie Davis, leader of the James Moore Collegiate Athletics Team, and I'm here with another week of News and Brews, our To The Point video series where we discuss new developments related to the coronavirus pandemic and other emerging issues in college athletics. As featured on previous News and Brews, our team frequently talks with other schools about telling their financial story and making sure the story is complete. I'm very excited to welcome today's guest, Matt Brown, who is the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter, which is his twice or sometimes more uh, weekly newsletter on the off-the-field forces that shape on-the-field results in college football. But he also elaborates more than college football, especially recently as he talks more globally about how uh, the pandemic and other issues happening right now in the country are shaping and involving college athletics. I really enjoy uh, reading Matt's perspective on financial and non-financial matters related to college athletics, and I'm looking forward to sharing his perspective uh, representing the schools in the media um, with you today so that you can have a better understanding of um, the media's perspective and what's out there and also how you can work together to ensure that the quality information that's being shared does uh, tell your complete story. So welcome, Matt. Uh, why don't you start by sharing your perspective and background on what inspires you to write about the business of college sports? Sure, Katie, and, and thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I have a little bit of a non-traditional background, I think, uh, as as a journalist. I spent the last seven years working for SB Nation and Vox Media, running their college brands. And a, a big challenge that we had at SB Nation was trying to stand out. Uh, amidst a sea of a bunch of other people that are writing about college athletics. And unlike our, our colleagues at CBS or Turner Broadcasting or ESPN at, at Vox, we weren't rights holders. Um, and a lot of the times we were a much smaller entity than a lot of our, our peers and competitors. And so we really had to dig very deep in figuring out new niches and new places to occupy within the college athletic space and new kind of stories that we could tell. Because if we just wrote about Alabama's depth chart, there's a, a ton of other people that are doing that same thing, and a lot of them are on TV, and, and we weren't. Um, I can't come from a, an educator household. My, my mom was a, a college professor. Uh, I briefly worked as an educator myself, and growing up, that was uh, higher education issues and K-12 education issues were the things that we talked about more than what was happening on the football field, even though I grew up in rural Ohio where that was uh, a, a defining cultural, you know, it, defining part of the culture is, is you know, what's going on here with football. And so I took some of those experiences and things that I was passionate about as I, I came in here to Vox and realized that there aren't as many people that are writing about college athletic finances. There are not as many people writing about higher education policy. And there aren't as many people writing about some of these other forces that shape what happens with college football. I, I think that a lot of demographic stories, a lot of religion stories, a lot of uh, econ stories, politic, political stories, all of those things intersect and shape what higher education is, and in many cases shape what their football teams look like, what their basketball teams look like. And so that's what I'm really passionate about, and that's what this, this whole newsletter project is supposed to be too, to try to demystify some of these things and to explain how stories that don't look like college football stories might actually be college football stories. Mm -hmm. That's great, and I, I love your perspective, and you know, you're having to figure out how to differentiate yourself in the market against these bigger players that have been around for a long time. And in doing that, your perspective really dives deeper and gets further than the surface level that a lot of others present. 
And you tell I what I really like about your stories is you tell all sides of it. And, you know, other people are considering this and I've seen this out here. And there's these different voices that are sort of competing voices and forces that influence your thoughts and perceptions about what's going on. And I really like that background. And I think that's so important with finance because there's other um journalists that I won't mention their names, but they are very one-sided and want to just make it look like college athletics is completely dysfunctional financially. And and there are reasons behind why decisions are made that involve finances and it doesn't really portray the full story. So I really appreciate the stories that you share. And I think that um, a lot of our listeners will also uh, get a lot out of that. And just understanding what the media needs and how they can provide that um, to help better provide that perspective, even to the journalists that might be one-sided. Maybe it's because they don't have all the right information to tell their story. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but um, wanting to hear from you right now, um, you know, there's a whole lot going on um, between COVID-19, um, you know, schools being shut down, sports being shut down, yeah. spring seniors returning, um, drastic cost-cutting measures like cutting sports or reducing travel and pay cuts. And then add to that, there's still pending legislation on name, image, and likeness that is moving forward, not as quickly as it was before the pandemic, but it is still moving. Um, now we have a um, re-emerging focus on racial injustice and Black Lives Matter. Um, and there's other complaints that are always out there about coaching compensation and other overspending in college athletics. So there's just a lot hitting college sports right now. Um, what do you see as traits as you look at all these different athletics programs that you think, um, you know, which types of programs do you think are best suited to navigate all of this that's going on right now? That's a, that's a great question. And you're right. There's a ton going on. I, it, it was interesting when I first launched this project, I, I worried a little bit, especially in the off season where there's not as much happening within college football that I can have enough to write about. And now it's, I, I have way too much. Uh, I, I could easily write a newsletter of 2000 words. I think every single day, um, if I wasn't also, you know, running an unlicensed kindergarten, I think out of our house, I, I have two <laughs> little kids that are, would normally be in school and there aren't, and I'm one guy. So there, 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 there's, there's, there's so much that, that's happening. And when I look at some of these schools here that I've studied and I'm talking to around and everything, I think generally speaking, if you are a very large state institution with a large established athletics brand and multiple strong revenue sources and a large endowment, you're going to be better financially equipped to handle a lot of the uncertainty that's happening, not just from COVID, but you know, as, as you're probably aware and, and increasingly I think my readers are, there was a lot of dangerous headwinds coming into higher education before the pandemic, before a lot of these things happened. And if you're a school like, I went to Ohio State, Ohio State's an enormous school. If Ohio State experiences a small decrease in enrollment, that is a challenge, but it's a different challenge than say Akron or say Hiram or Denison or that matter, or a small liberal arts college within, within the state of Ohio. So I look at some of these highly tuition dependent small liberal arts schools, these institutions with less than 3,000 people who don't have large endowments. And I think, well, that's going to, you have some stronger financial and probably strategic challenges there. And I also look at some of these regional public institutions, some of whom have a little bit larger endowment, but especially in places that are experiencing population decline uh, throughout the, the my native Rust Belt or in some other cities in, in the South or elsewhere in the country. 
as as really being in a, a much more challenging position. I, I would probably much rather be a, a tier one research institution right now than than maybe an administrator at Southern Illinois uh, or at Youngstown State or some other places where I know it, that that the, the financial pressures are going to be stronger and and felt I think more more holistically than they might at a school like Michigan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so looking at all of these things and seeing the trends even before the pandemic, when the pandemic hit in mid-March and everything just turned on a dime, um, what were your initial predictions? And I'm curious how that has evolved over the last um, 60 days or 30 days or even a week ago, because things are still continuing to change. Um, how has your perspective changed as things keep evolving? Yeah, I, I, I can't recall any news event certainly in my lifetime, where there's been such rapid change very quickly. And one of the things as, as a writer that this, I think really, uh, I've, had, I've really doubled down on is it's, it's increased my sense of humility because there's so much here that I don't know. And I'll, you know, I have a political science degree, right? I haven't taken a biology class since my sophomore year of college. I remember a little bit about what the mitochondria is, but I, I'm definitely not an infectious disease expert. There's, there's, I have to rely on expertise from a lot of other people and I have to be comfortable um, as I'm writing and as I'm asking questions to not be afraid to ask stupid questions and to admit all the things that I don't know. And honestly, I, I think it's a trait that's helped me in my, in my newsletter over the last year. I'm, I'm not an accountant, I'm not an attorney. I've written and read and tried to follow this as, as best as I can. But I, I, I know in the back of my mind as I'm preparing to write a story or thinking, there's a lot of things that I don't know. And so I, I should ask. And I know that my readers are gonna appreciate me asking potentially some of those dumb questions. And so, I, you know, not I, I think I was probably one of the first journalists that reached out to a couple of these conference officials before the NCAA tournament to say, what's your plan if we have an event interrupted by a pandemic? Because for a lot of these leagues, it hasn't happened ever. You know, the Big Ten has been around since the Paleolithic era, but a lot of these other leagues, they weren't around for the 1918 Spanish flu. They weren't around for, uh, you know, outbreaks from mumps and measles. And it was, I was, uh, it's uncharted territory. And I think one thing that I've learned is that just as I realize, hey, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of things that I don't know, there's a lot of things that are above my comfort level and expertise level. I think that's true for athletic directors. I think it's true for coaches. I think it's true for public health officials and everybody involved here. And there are, I think some institutions and leaders that are more comfortable with that risk and more comfortable saying, I don't know. Uh, and there are others that are, are maybe less so. Um, I, I think that the humanity uh, and the limitations of even very impressive leaders has, has been on display over the past couple of months. And I don't say that as a criticism. I think it's I think it's an important reminder that we are all just trying to make the best decisions we possibly can with our data set. And in this particular case, that data is awfully limited and it's, it, it fluctuates an awful lot. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. And something we talk a lot about is, um, you know, how important each role is within an athletic department to be able to collaborate on what they know. So the person in the CFO's chair is very different from the AD, who's very different from internal ops and external ops. And, um, you know, how crucial it is for those collaborations to happen, um, to build those synergies and really navigate it together because not one person knows everything and the knowledge from each part provides more context to be able to make better decisions, tell better stories. Um, and I like that that's your approach to writing and sharing the story with, um, you know, with the public. So, um, Speaking of your newsletters, so you've had, um, you know, you've got some great content coming out and you have been talking um, 
with conference commissioners or have been talking about conferences and decisions that are being made as they're evolving. Um, a week or so ago, you put a newsletter out about um, the American Athletic Conference where you interviewed their commissioner and talking about regional scheduling, TV deals post-UConn, basketball schedules. Um, and then this week you had a newsletter come out uh, about Conference USA and the Sun Belt and what would it look like if you redrew some conference lines and how could that help the schools um, better compete uh, when there are so many limitations right now. So um, an example you discussed in your American Athletic Conference um, article was uh, Olympic sports as independence. Um, did the commissioner provide much context into the financial implications of this strategy? Um, and what would you think that financial listeners would like to know more about that interview? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Mike, Mike Oresco is uh, one, one thing I appreciate about, appreciate about him is he's not afraid to um, to engage with the media. And I, I think once he understood that, I, you know, I'm actually interested in a lot of that nitty gritty stuff that he was he was willing to dig into that a little bit because most reporters aren't saying, listen, I'd, I'd love to get 20 minutes of your time and talk about swimming schedule. Um, that's that, that's it's generally not what, what people are looking for. And that's fine. I guess that's also not a criticism. So what the American does right now for a lot of their, um, you know, individual sports is that they currently basically have those team schedules independence. If you're uh, on, on the tennis team uh, at Cincinnati or ECU or an AAC institution, you don't play a formal league schedule like you might if you were a baseball player uh, in the Big Ten. So that might free you to schedule regionally. It might free you if you are a team that's a very ambitious tennis team and you want to improve your your RPI or your ability to to you know make noise in the NCAA tournament. Maybe you schedule nationally uh, to play higher profile programs. So then you might have you'll have a, a league postseason event. And that's done in a couple of other schools. And what the American is considering is potentially doing that with team sports and and basically just telling all the baseball teams, hey, schedule whoever you want. We'll have a tournament at the end of the year so we can have an auto an automatic qualifier for the NCAA tournament. But if you want to play it, all your baseball opponents a bus trip away to save money, go for it. And for the American, it makes sense to investigate that because you have you have teams in Philadelphia and Cincinnati. You have teams in the Mid-South. You have teams in Texas. It's, it's a pretty wide geographic area. And that's not uncommon. A lot of school conferences are like that now. But. These are not schools that are blessed with unlimited money. Your your, your broadcasting revenue is limited. So I, I think it is, it is interesting here, and I think I would encourage basically all school thought leaders to really look at what is the exact product we're trying to deliver or the experience that we're trying to deliver with our Olympic sports. And if we're not somewhere where we're committed to a gigantic broadcast deal for those Olympic sports, like you might within the Pac-12, what are other mechanisms or scheduling arrangements that you might do that can help you save money and still deliver on that experience? And, mm -hmm. you know, and that's going to look really different. For, I mean, for swimming, I, I've talked to a couple leaders here. That might mean you press the NCAA for changes to let you swim against Division II or Division III schools more often. There's a lot of, of elite, really good college swim programs that can beat D1 teams at the D3 level. Emory, Kenyon, Denison, they're really great. Um, and if you could bust there, why don't you do it and save money? I, I had why had one coach float. What if we did a virtual swim meet and, and literally just had like a timer at, at both pools so we don't have to go 700 miles away? I, maybe that compromises the student experience a little bit, but maybe this is a time to literally to, to brainstorm. And the joke that we had in our office and, and the joke that sometimes I have with my wife when I'm, you know, kind of spitballing about what, we, what we're going to have for dinner, it's there's no bad ideas in a brainstorm. You, you kind of call those out later. 
And this is, a, I think, both a, a an opportunity for a lot of these leagues, especially geographically spread apart leagues that aren't financially super resourced to think about what can we do very different that changes our status quo after this? So we're not just trying to you know, function, but what can we do that's really different that might allow us to thrive or might allow some of our Olympic sports or even revenue sports to have a, a different experience, but one that still benefits our fans and consumers. And mm -hmm. I think what the Americans considering is interesting, what Conference USA, the Sun Belt, the Big Sky, the Mountain West, they might try some other things too. I'm, I'm fascinated to see how other people will try to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Well, and the American is the perfect example because, you know, they're referred to as power six, right? If there was a power six, they would be pulled in. Um, yeah. But the reality is you pull the curtain back and it's still funding of a group of five um, conference. You know, you have the, um, you know, the low funding, you don't have the same kind of backing and resources that these power five conferences have. Um, but you still have the expectations to recruit, to provide the fan experience, to upgrade your facilities and and all of these things that sort of leave them in this tug of war of who are we? What do we want to be? Is that feasible? And if there's an opportunity for them to redivert funds that were going to travel to be able to um, invest those in other things that can help them get to the next level, I think that's really important. So, you know, brainstorming is perfect um, description of there's never a bad idea and just really throwing things out there and how can how can they manage those expectations with the limited resources they have and do more with less. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I love that point I, of what a difficult position it is for those schools to be in, especially like, you know, you go back to where I grew up, where you have Cincinnati, which has a, an institution that has as a school, I think evolved tremendously over the last 15 years. Growing up, that was a commuter college, uh, and now it's, it's really become a, a much different in, you know, institutional profile. But when you look under the hood, there's a lot of student fee money coming in there. There's a lot of institutional uh, subsidy coming in. So if you were a journalist and just looked at the top line budget number, you might get it, 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 that, it might be a big number, but how that school's funded compared to Ohio State or even Purdue, is very different. And so those expectations are, have to be different and what you can potentially deliver has to be different, but you're right, the pressure's there. The, right. the I would, this has been a theme of my writing and it's one I would implore anybody who can hear me who works at a school to really think about is, who are you and what do you, what do you wanna be now? Because now you have a chance to maybe redefine that or ask that question in a different way. And if the answer is we're trying to chase schools that have completely different resource expectations and, and fundraising ability and, re, and to, to reach something that you're probably not going to get, maybe now's a, a chance to, to to reset that. And that doesn't necessarily mean dropping down a level or, or dropping sports or anything, but there's lots of different ways within college athletics, I think, to have a worthwhile student, fan, and institutional experience, and they don't all have to look like Ohio State and Texas. Right. You're absolutely right. And I, like you, I grew up in Florida. Our firm is headquartered in Gainesville, Florida. Um, and so I grew up with University of Florida in my backyard, I went to UF, um, but I also grew up with University of Central Florida, University of South Florida, also in my backyard. And just seeing how those two schools that are both in the American, how they have evolved over time and grown and that what they offer to the student population as a whole is amazing. What they offer to their athletes is amazing. Um, the pressures that they have are so strong. Um, but they don't get this, the same resources because they, they don't have that long 
seated tradition um, to, to help them be more established, but they are working on it and they're doing a great job of it. And I commend a, a lot um, a lot of the schools that we work with or are friends with that are in that conference have been doing an amazing job with, with what they've got. Um, and I like that their commissioner is willing to think outside the box and have those conversations to um, brainstorm some of those things. Um, yeah. A lot of the research and advocacy that we offer um, to schools from a financial perspective is around flaws in the current financial reporting model uh, that the schools have to follow for public filings um, or other regulatory issues. So there's the um, federal government EADA, there's the NCAA reporting, and all of that is what feeds into the publicly available databases that people like you have to rely on so that it helps you tell a credible story. But um, we know that there are pieces of that that's missing. Um, and wanting to hear from you, what kind of information do you think is missing from this reporting that would help you as a writer provide a more well-rounded account of what's going on in the business of college athletics? Yeah, this 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 is a passion project for me. Like one, one of the things that I'm actually hoping to do with extra points. And I've, I'm partnering with uh, some other third party uh, organizations and other you know, media members over the, later this year is to help provide other central databases for other media, uh, other writers to get some of this financial information. Because what I can tell you right now, and I did this earlier in my career, and I know that most of my peers do this, is you just go to the USA Today Athletic Database. And I know that they worked, I think, with, with Syracuse at an outside law firm and they FOIA a bunch of top line budget things and they put it in the searchable database and so anybody can look up and say hmm, this athletic department has a budget of x i will then make uh, inferences based on that number or maybe i'll dig into it a little bit and i can look at what they get earned from ticket sales or what they earned from conference revenue distributions and that i think is a useful number in many ways but i'm sure as you know and, and as the people listening to this know that number obscures a lot of different stuff. And the, the single biggest thing for me that I've learned is subsidy means a whole lot of different things on, on, on that particular chart. Uh, that might mean a, a change in how a university accounts for in-state versus out-of-state tuition for, for an, uh, an athlete. That might be some kind of interdepartmental revenue transfer. It might be literally cutting the check because the there, there's like eight or nine different things. And if we had the PDF of the actual like budget, um available you might be able to tease some of that information out because they look a little bit different but that's not and th th that's not what's on the usa today database and, and th that's okay and if you go into the euda or you look in the night commission you find some of those those changes too like I, I had this exact conversation with an athletic director last week with at akron when i you know they said okay we're, we're going to cut baseball and we hope to save five hundred thousand dollars and i went into the euda database and i said well Looks like you only have two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars in operational costs for baseball. Those numbers don't add up. Like, what, 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 what am I missing? Because I could look at this and say, well, clearly the university is not telling the truth. And they say, like, we don't. Those numbers aren't accurate. They don't. They don't capture the the full expense. So, as a writer, um, especially right now, when a lot of FOIA clerks um, are not essential employees, are not responding to those requests very quickly. If a writer is not able to, to get the financial information to tell the most complete and accurate story, um, some of them are either, they're either gonna have gaps in your story or you might make inferences. And unfortunately, a lot of universities in the eyes of media members and many consumers don't, have, don't get the benefit of the doubt or even have a ton of credibility with how they plead poverty or how they, they plead financial distress. Because if you're a beat writer, 
and you hear a school say like, hey, listen, we're, we're in real financial problems. And I saw you built a waterfall in your locker room. And I saw that you're paying your strength coach $450,000. Um, I'm going to approach your claims of poverty with extreme skepticism. And that's about as, you know, that's the most polite way that you can talk about it. So right. if you're if you're an SID, if you're a university and you know that there are things in your uh, DOE filings or that appear on, on public databases and you, you don't feel like that captures things completely, share your story. Um, the, the biggest specific example of this that I can think of recently, it's very common uh, in college athletics, you know, for the off season for school, for reporters to file open records requests to figure out which schools spend the most on athletic recruiting. And there are certain things that are gonna show up in all those budgets, how they're paying for food, what the travel expenses look like, what the per diems are for some of those coaches. And the gap is enormous between different institutions. It could be millions of dollars, even though you can only, the NCAA says, you know, caps the number of people you can have in for an official visit. You're not gonna uh, bring in 400 kids for an unofficial visit because those kids have to pay for what they're eating. Um, and you can only sign so many kids for your scholarships anyway. And what I find is that a lot of those gaps just depend on how you on how you handle the reporting. Does the university own the private jet? Well, maybe that's athletic budget. Maybe that's somewhere else. Um, is the university paying themselves for the catering for those meals? Some cases they are. Some cases they're not. And that leads to wildly divergent reporting. And you know, part of our job is to help us through some of those things too. But if you are somebody that creates those reporting reports, or if you're a, an athletic director, like I'm sick of Joe Blogger writing the story that says I spent $11 billion on catering food for linebackers, and you know what, that's not true. Don't hide the story behind those numbers under a rock. The more that you can help people who are not accountants understand what those numbers mean and don't mean, and we're not gonna just print what you tell us as like a PR statement, we're gonna, we're gonna suss it out too. But the more that you help us, I think the, the more, consistent, clear data both other reporters will have and that fans will have. I, I think it is unfortunate and it's not any one person's fault or done nefariously or anything. I think there's some gaps in understanding for a lot of college athletics fans about how universities are funded, how their athletic departments are funded um, and, and how the finances behind college football. And that leads to some, I think some unfortunate attitudes that maybe could have been corrected had everybody been communicating a little bit better. Right. I, I heard from a Power 5 CFO um, that one of their board of trustees members, so if you think about board of trustees members at a university are the who's who of the alumni or the community of that university. They are yeah. really well educated, well regarded people in the community, um, read a story in a local paper and came to a meeting and said, if if this athletic program were stock, I would not invest in it which is really unfortunate because rather than hearing and seeing the full, which this person had access to the complete set of financials, the context behind it, because they sit in meetings discussing these things, but just hearing the perspective of the local paper um, was disheartening to the CFO and made um, him realize that he's got to work on something a little bit more. And then, you know, I've talked to another um, Power 5 school, their AD and their CFO um, in a different conference. and they said that how much challenge, how challenged they are because of the timing of when you report these dollars, as well as it's only picking up what revenue and expenses, meaning something that you recognize at that point in time. It's not picking up what goes on the balance sheet, which would be things like, well, we got a lot of cash because we financed debt. Even though it looks like we're in the red, we still have cash flow. And so we took out debt to take on these initiatives, such as these large um, facilities upgrades or new stadiums or whatever the case may be. And, and those 
facilities upgrades or stadiums and, and other big projects like that don't show up as an expense. They show up as an asset on your balance sheet, which doesn't even right. exist in these publicly available reports. Um, or they partially exist in, in the NCAA one, but it's it's not enough to show that, okay, yeah, we're not in the red this year, but we are working on building up all these assets. And so it's looking like we're not spending the money that we are, and we do need to go out and solicit more donations. So, you know, if you're in the middle of a capital campaign and your NCAA report shows that you're really profitable, that's not gonna help state your case, um, just as you had talked about. Um, so there there is a huge struggle there and a, you know something we really strongly advocate as well of course you know as um, accountants we have to remain confidential on everything so we can't just be like oh here matt here's all these <laughs> financials and here's the story we have to yeah, encourage schools to say hey you should be strategic and collaborate with your local media and you know put the pr out there to tell the story you want to tell and give them the resources to where they can do their own due diligence to fact check everything um, sure. So I, I like that um, you're working on that and that you recognize that and that you've got a cohort that's working on um, getting some more information to be able to put that out there. Um, if, and if nothing else, we'd love for the original source documents to be to be more available. They're, they're generally public records anyway. Um, we know that that there's things that, that two people can suss out, but the people, you know, with 30 or 40 people having a chance to look at them, that might be more. There's uh, the one last quick thing I think I want to note. I heard you mention department's profitability, and that might actually be an, another place where schools and university stakeholders can do a better job of educating the public and working with media partners about maybe not using that term so much, right? Like, I mean, we, we can look at a balance sheet and say, okay, okay more money is coming in than coming out, ergo you're profitable, but these are technically nonprofits, and they have different institutional goals and desires. And, you know, if Indiana basketball wanted to their goal was to have the, the biggest, you know, hunk of cash at the end of the year in their reserves. I'm sure they would do things a little bit differently than if they have the financial incentives that they have now. Like there are other ways to evaluate the fiscal health of a department or a sport beyond just profitability, because that's not even really the ideal. Like it, it, it drives me crazy when I see a lot of stories that say like, oh my gosh, only 17 athletic departments are profitable. Like we looked at the expenses and revenues and like that would be a bigger deal if this was Major League Baseball, but that's not where we are. That's not where these schools are operating. And that doesn't mean that everybody else is running a little Sisters of the Poor charitable operation. It's These are these are messaging disconnects. Um, I think we won't, collectively would be better if we were addressed. Yes, and, and a lot of those expenses go back to the university. So yep. scholarships and, um, you know, things like that. There's transfers happening all the time, too, that um, go back to the university, and that is not captured either. It's just shown as an expense. Yeah, yeah. Um, paying for parking lots, paying for paying for food, paying for scholarships, consulting from the business school. There's, there's, there's a whole litany of things. And I mean, I'm a dork, so I think this stuff's really interesting to me. Yeah. I want to I know about it. Um, and hey, you know, CFO, um, I'll give you my email address, Rodan. I'd love to talk to you about it, too. But uh, that's it's, it's not being captured. And so when you get an angry email or you, you get an angry column from, from, from somebody at the local newspaper who, to their credit, probably furloughed half their staff. And so they don't have the, the capability of doing that same investigative work that they had before. That, that might be why. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's a good point with the job cuts that are happening in the media industry. It's harder for reporters like you to get some of these stories out there because they 
you know, everyone wants to read the Alabama depth chart. Um, so how do you, um, what do you recommend to get new voices out there to rise up the other information that's um, so important for people to hear? Yeah, th this is a good question. And I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, college, for college athletics, chances are your flagship university is going to be the biggest employer in your town. It's going to be one of the biggest cultural institutions within your state. Um, it's a huge economic driver. It's it's so much more than just a football team, right? But if you, I'm sorry about that. Um, um, it's so much more than just a football team. And if you're, you know, if you're Ohio State or Florida and you have a gigantic beat, um, you have the capability and the depth to dig into some of that a little bit more. But we're seeing, especially with all these cuts for local news, if you used to have six people, and now you have one and a half people or less, the focus has to be the depth chart. The focus has to be the, the, the broadest possible audience. And so, you know, we hope to fill some of that gap. And part of what I, I'd like to do with Extra Points and maybe kind of Extra Points 2.0 in a couple of months is to provide resources to help other reporters localize some of these stories and you know influence those influencers but th this is a great time i think if you're an economist or if you're an accountant or if you're somebody who doesn't work for a university but is passionate or interested in some of these issues that's a great time i think to get our twitter account that's a great time to, to start up a blog or start up a Substack and add your voice because there's a huge vacuum and i'll tell you for one I, i'm not the only person that's going to be really interested in that there's going to be a lot of local beat reporters and television stations that are going to want you to understand your expertise and, mm -hmm. and localize some of these stories and if they're not getting it from you and if they're not able to go find it themselves there's going to be inaccurate or insufficient information about some of these things so if you're somebody that is that is interested even if you don't have the answers but you're, you're interested in, in, in these kind of stories or or dig, digging into them i would i would implore you now is the best time possible, I think, to, to try and share that with the world. Right. There's more eyes on screens now than ever before. And especially now, yeah. And and people are very interested in seeing what's going to happen and how things are going to evolve in a post-COVID landscape. And um, I do think that there's so much information out that's being shared out there that's just not being really captured formally in the mainstream media. Um, so even in my perspective, by the time it hits ESPN or Sports Illustrated, I'm like, oh, that's old news. <laughs> and so, um, so I, I do think that, you know, getting out there, seeing what people are chattering about, um, and then really putting your own twist on it because there's no reason to have the same story being told 500 different ways. Yeah. Um, but how can you tell it to provide as much context and relevance as possible? Um, so with all the information that comes out, how do you comb through um, it all just to figure out what's real, what's clickbait, um, and how are you able to draw a conclusion whether um, something's good or not with so many voices out there? It, it is a challenge, and it's, it's one of the biggest challenges, I think, for, for any kind of consumer, um, writer, blogger, anybody. And so you know, part of it for me, I'm, I'm fortunate that this has been my beat for the last seven years, and I've been a heavy consumer of, of, of college athletics media for a while. Um, so I have a general idea of like, who are the non-traditional voices who have, that I can trust, and who are people that are, you know, posting message board realignment fever dreams, right? Like there's 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 definitely places to find those a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. And you, you also, once you do this for a while, you get to understand a little bit, um, when you read a story, you can kind of guess like, hey, so what, what part of this came from an agent? 
what part of this came from the coach off the record. You can kind of, you know, after years of experience, you can suss out who benefited by the story getting out there uh, and, and understand their motives a little bit. Um, it is it, it is difficult. And I think I've, you know, I've been publishing extra points for over a year and I've done dozens and dozens and dozens of newsletters. And there's probably things that I've have been referenced or shared at some point that I missed some of that context, especially when you're writing about things nationally or what I'm doing and writing a lot about smaller markets. I've written a lot about division two II and three and FCS and, and G5 in areas where you don't have a huge beat. And so, sure, I might be missing some important Sioux City context um, or you know, some, some important you know, rural Eastern Oregon context sometimes. So it's, it's part of my job to reach out to those reporters or reach out to some of those people and, and build those networks a little bit better. I think, it, you know, in general, you don't want to rely on just one source, especially if it's uh, a source that doesn't have a whole, that's up by themselves, that, that doesn't have a whole lot of institutional credibility behind them. And as consumers and, and authors and, and readers, we have to ask about the, the, the motives behind some of these particular stories. Who, who is benefiting, who is, who is not benefiting, and, and, and weigh that against specific quotes or allegations to, to see how much weight that you want to put on those or not. Because... And again, not a criticism, but lots of leaders in college athletics, athletic directors, presidents, agents, coaches, when they're choosing to, to speak to the media, especially if they don't do that very often or, or get something out, there's a reason that, that, that they're sharing that particular information. And it's part of our job to figure out, to evaluate then that particular claim against the rest of the evidence rather than taking it always as full gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, something that we you know look at too. but when it's a financial story, which, you know, generally that's where we're really trying to fact check it. Yeah. It's pretty easy for us, especially when it's about a school that we work with, because we have everything right there at our fingertips. And um, so we're able to easily decipher that. But it's um, really good to hear, you know, just from your experience, um, what you're looking for in a credible story and how you're um, going to vet that out even further. And that can be helpful for schools and their relationships with local media and people like you to help make sure that information is put out there um, well for them. So thank you for sharing that perspective. I want to shift gears a little bit sure. and talk about um, predicting the future of college football, which it's getting a little bit easier to predict now than it was, say, a month or so ago. Yeah. Um, but you foresee a real chance at the CFP or conferences or even the NCAA's oversight committee um, allowing football teams, um, especially the G5 schools and the FCS mid-majors, um, to temporarily break away from their conferences or divisions for just one year to facilitate any kind of regional athletics, um, considering all the challenges with COVID and what's allowed um, is dictated on a generally a state by state basis. So what it looks like right now in Florida and Georgia looks very different than what it looks like in the Northeast and in California. And so um, if you were to redraw regional competition lines for one year only, how would you approach it? And what would you think that the financial ripple effect would be? You know, that's a good question. And I'll, I'll preface any of these with the, you know, the, the clear you know, explanation that if I could pre really predict the future, I'd make a lot more money from extra yes, points than, than I do right now. And, and things change a ton. Like what, 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 based on what I've read and heard and talked to, a wholesale like one year bonus realignment or anything, especially at these bigger leagues, feels very unlikely to me because part of the, the huge push to having a college football season at all is to capture uh, the lucrative broadcast revenue that a lot of these major conferences get. 
And if that lucrative broadcast revenue now means that Michigan and Michigan State and Wisconsin are not part of that group, almost assuredly, it means you're redrawing that contract or that deal even even for one year. And you know, you do that too many times that that, that limits the the viability of the entire project to begin with. First, mm-hmm. at the Division two, three, NAIA, even FCS level, where that's less of a concern, if we're seeing that for Olympic sports, I could theoretically see something similar to that. And and I think in general, I'm a big proponent of schools trying to to seek out regionalized scheduling opportunities whenever they can, even independent of COVID. I think, as, as particularly for college football, when most schools are struggling to sell tickets, and particularly in these early season contests before conference play, where the bulk of them are not particularly competitive, the best way that you can get people into the gate is to provide a matchup that is culturally relevant to them in their own lives. If you are a Florida person, you, you live in Gainesville, people at your gym, your church, your office, your neighborhood, they went to UCF, they went to USF, they 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 they, they went to a bunch of other regional schools. All you want to do is dunk on those people. You there's a good chance you don't know anybody that went to the University of Wyoming. And so that that game, while there may be a buy game, you might be able to sell some tickets, that doesn't have the same appeal. So um, I, it would surprise me if you completely broke down, you know, leagues completely. But do I think there's a chance, a pretty good chance that uh, some previously scheduled games are going to get realtered? And particularly if you're a school like in the Mountain West, is mm-hmm. this a year that you might decide to schedule a, a Division II team or call somebody out, up in the RMAC? Yeah, I think I think that's possible. If you're a, a G5 team, you might be playing a game that you never thought you'd be playing this season uh, just because it's safest and, and closest. Um, and, and big picture, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it would not surprise me at all if, if when the dust actually settles, there's some games that get played at Division One that would have never been played seven or eight years ago for, for this mm-hmm. season. Mm-hmm. And and I see, I see so many sides of it. Well, for one, I'm not even going to get into the conversation of the Florida schools playing each other. <laughs> Sure. A touchy touchy specific example. That's I'm I'm sure. Um, But we work with Danny White if you're listening. (laughs) We we work with schools in the California state system that, you know, there's Mount West, there's Big Sky, there's, you know, an hour bus trip. And could they play each other um, versus some in-conference play? But the flip side is if they're especially if they're taking up some of those non-conference dates on the schedule, some of these smaller schools really uh, bank on the guarantees that they're going to get. Yeah. So if the game is going to happen as originally scheduled um, and they can get that guarantee, I think they would move heaven and earth to try to travel to get there because it's going to be worth their while. And especially on a fluke, um, we saw a few last football season where the the underdog won. And so that's even better. Um, or we saw as things were, um, you know, some of these kickoff games before COVID that were getting rescheduled for these really big TV events, that there were two large power five schools in the Southeast that had to shell out that guaranteed money to these smaller schools, even because they chose to cancel the game and play each other instead. And those schools rely on that money so heavily. And um, so, so I'm torn on, does it make sense just for the spirit of competition? And if the game's only going to happen, if it's within the state, just do it. But also knowing that um, there's other financial ripple effects that could negatively impact those programs if they aren't sticking to their originally scheduled programming for lack of a better term. But um, right. In in fact, I would not be surprised if we had some college football teams this year that even though they were legally cleared to play, 
they decide not to do it for that for that exact reason. If you're in, if you're a school like New Mexico State, right, you're playing an independent schedule and you've got three of those buy games on your on your slate, and that's going to bring in three and a half million dollars, and you know that that's the whole that that's the 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 the, the crux of your whole football schedule. You go and you travel to play UConn, you travel to play UMass, you're going to lose money on that trip. And if we had some situation where suddenly all of those buy games were taken off the table, and that might be true for some other schools in the Northeast, it might be true for some of the schools that you work with. I could absolutely see a situation where they said, if we play this in front of 25% capacity and we lose these gigantic games, we're going to lose $9 million. And we as an institution can't afford that right now. And I, I think that would be a defensible decision to make, to decide, like, we need to wait until the, the economic realities of scheduling change so that we can go back to doing what we were doing. Uh, that seems more likely to me than maybe, like, tectonic shift realignment for some of these bigger schools, even if it's just for a year or two. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, something that I'm shocked that hasn't really been discussed as much as I thought it would, because it seemed to be trending the future of college sports as esports in the gaming space. And we saw yeah. earlier on in the pandemic, um, NASCAR did an um, esports-ish event. And some of the, um, you know, the spring games uh, for schools, they incorporate esports with some of their coaches and things like that. I know from um, being one of your Twitter followers that you've recently uh, secured a copy of NCAA 2014. Um, and so I, I, did, yeah. I wanted to hear your thoughts on, you know, esports and how you can integrate that within college football. And could teams actually go that route to engage fans and generate revenue in the gaming space? Sure. I, and, um, it, there's the, the first, the secondary market for those old college football games for college football and basketball is fascinating. It's clear that the demand is there because, yeah, that game came out in 2013. I, it came out for a, a, an older video game system. And if you go on eBay, it, they generally go for over $100. Um, sometimes, you know, way more than that. They're not, they're not producing it anymore. You can't buy it digitally. Fans really want it. And it's been it's been inter interesting and impressive for me. See how a couple of schools have been really creative with utilizing uh, esports in that particular game and their recruiting packages. Like I know Nebraska has done this. A couple of G5 programs have done this. They've used this for your spring game, and it's it, it is absolutely a way to engage with some of your fans. Now, in order for this to really, I think, take off for esports, particularly for football and basketball, we got to have group licensing. Um, we got to be able to actually produce <laughs> another one of these games. And I understand Val Ackerman's comments about why this isn't feasible. And I understand the legal reasons why some of these athletic directors, university presidents are hesitant to go down that road. I've written about this and, and my advice uh, would be to any decision maker at this point is, I don't know, especially if you're a little bit older, I don't think you fully appreciate the level of goodwill that, you're, that you would be able to get with politicians, fans and consumers and the players themselves, if you find a way to bring this back. This used to be one of the great fringe benefits of being a Division One athlete. Even if you were a, a third string center at Bowling Green and never got into a game, you had to be in a video game and nobody could take that away from you. And, and you would have done that for free. Like that, I've, I've heard players tell me this. Um, there, there, there's an enormous demand. And I think if, if we get to a point where schools are comfortable making the concessions needed to make that happen, one, um, uh, this, this this sounds superficial and silly, but I swear to God, it's true. Some member of Congress is going to go to their constituents and say, I helped bring the NCAA video game back, and that's going to matter. Like, it, 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 you will get so much goodwill from a lot of these people right now that don't think very highly of the NCAA and may not think very highly of the university leadership. And I think that that will absolutely open up a potential revenue stream. 
there is a huge, huge growing appetite for mobile gaming, which did not exist when NCAA 14 came out. And for a, a pared down version of this for people to be able to engage with esports or your brand on a, in a licensed phone game, you can make a lot of money that way, even if you're not a very particularly big school. You just have, and, and you can engage a younger generation in a way that's more challenging when they don't wanna show up at your uh, alumni tailgate or, or interact in the same way that, that the current donor class does right now. I'm, do, I, I, you know, I've read a lot of predictions, people saying like, you know, esports is gonna be the new college football and it's gonna be this new broadcast event. And I'm a little bit skeptical. And part of that might be because I'm 33 and other than like Madden, I don't really play any of the esports games that are, that are very big right now. They, they, seem, they seem foreign and scary to me. Um, you know, just like I'm sure, you know, my parents felt like when I got out my Sega Genesis, but even just directly for sports games, I know there's an audience there. There's people that want to engage with your brand that way. It would be a smart financial and cultural decision, I think, for schools to find ways to engage with that group. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, schools were one argument that we were helping advocate for Power Five before the pandemic was that, yes, expenses are going up. But there, the increase in expenses is in line with the increase in revenue. And if anything, the revenue shifted to more of a what at the time we felt was guaranteed model through media versus yeah. ticket sales um, that is, has more variability. And I call it butts in the seats versus butts on the couch. And so how can you continue to engage and find new ways and hedge, hedge yourself essentially on these TV deals when, you know, could, you know, go away or be significantly reduced because of something like a pandemic that happens once every 100 years. But are there other ways as sort of a backup plan to hedge that bet on, you know, gaming and, and you know, getting the next generation? And I do, I, I can't understand and, and conceptualize how it would be done and, and all of that, but I've been reading a lot about it. And even if you have the hurdles of, especially with name, image, and likeness happening right now too, I mean, it would definitely trend to being, too complicated to specify an athlete, but could you have player one, player two, player three, um, and then be just not tied to a person and have their own stats and you can control them yourselves um, and build their stats through gaming versus, you know, pulling from real data. Um, so um, you, I'm you could, I mean, that's, that's what they tried to do before. It was a little bit too close for comfort and obviously they got sued for it, but yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, enormous number of people would buy that. Um, and, and that that would be an absolutely one way that I, I, I'd really encourage a school to do. One other, I guess, unsolicited recommendation, I think, on that front. Um, I think there's a lot of potential revenue and engagement being left off the table in how you're licensing your merchandise, particularly with apparel and gear for women athletes. Um, you really can't get a women's basketball jersey almost anywhere. Um, it's very difficult to get a college baseball jersey. It's almost, you can't really get college softball ones. You can't really get um, you know, the, 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 any kind of merch for women athletics, even for these huge, you know, robust brands is very difficult to do. And, and my understanding is that I know Florida in particular has wanted to do this and their uh, merchandise partners have said like, you, then you, the onus is on you to handle the supply chain, the onus is on you to go get the local stores to buy the inventory, and you have to, and, and then that becomes a much more difficult thing to for for everybody to handle. If there's a way to solve that particular problem to get smaller inventory runs of more niche specific 
licensed branded merchandise, that is a great way for you to be able to build brand equity and engagement with people that want to be a part of some of your smaller sports. And right now they don't have the opportunity to. And if you're a huge school that has and great athletes, great athletes that huge Instagram followings, great athletes that, that people want to see and support and get to know, it's hard to do right now. And, and that might be something that, that if, if you're trying to, to reach Zoomers or millennials or some of these younger fans that aren't going to have their butt in the seat, I, th I think that's a good way to do it. Well, I can, you know, that's a really good point. And as a female fan, even the, if I'm not seeking out a specific um, athlete's jersey, just finding apparel um, when I go on campus and go to their um, fan shops or bookstores to try to find a shirt, I like to get the shirt for the apparel company that represents them. So if they're yeah. a Nike school or an Adidas school, I want that logo on the shirt because I know that that's adding value and it's going back to them. And I've struggled as a female to find anything decent that I want to wear to support those schools. Um, and so where I've ended up going is Fanatics. Fanatics has their own brand and I actually like their stuff, but it's different. But some of them have deals with Fanatics and that's a whole other story. But yeah. um, but that's um, definitely uh, something that's missing in the market for sure. As a female yeah. consumer and fan, I fully agree with that. The, I've, I've noticed some schools, I think Indiana has done a good job of this, of being a little bit more liberal with who they license some of their trademarks out to. And, you know, throughout the Midwest, we have, a, I think, a proliferation of these third-party companies, you know, Homage and Home Field Apparel. And um, there's, there's I, I think, one or two other ones that are in Chicago and a little bit west that get licenses for all these retro logos. And they actually make lots of shirts that are cut specifically for women. And that's not sold out of the bookstore. And... People want to people people care a lot about these brands. They people care about not just Florida. They care about the 1954 Florida iconography, right? Like they 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 they're the, the demand for this is, is almost insatiable. We just have to help some of these schools, you know, figure out the red tape to be able to bring those products to people. I I, I guarantee they actually want it. Sure, and that's another perfect example of where marketing and CFOs need to put their heads together and brainstorm how they can accomplish that and generate revenues and reach fans and um, you know all of that so that's um, sure. really good um, so thank you so much for your contributions I have one final question for you sure. um, in the spirit of news and brews we share whatever beverages that we're having for the day um, do you want to tell me what you're enjoying this afternoon what, what I'm enjoying right now is a beautiful and refreshing uh, Diet Shasta Cola, the official beverage of all dads who spend most of their non-working waking hours at Menards. Um, I, uh, I, I'm i not really a drinker myself, uh, I, 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 but I haven't been able to kick the caffeine or the pop habit. So I have a little fridge right around the corner here from my basement office that, that's very well stocked with this stuff. And uh, when, when I'm working, when I'm talking to people, there's, there's usually one on my desk. Yeah. Um, I'm today I'm having um, high quality H2O and I've not been drinking enough water. So it's in a, um, a steel mug. Actually, it's it's Cabma branded. So that's uh, that's the uh, college collegiate athletics business management association. That's an affiliate of NACTA. And um, we are um, proud supporters of that group. Um, when I get home, I'll probably be enjoying something, but I don't know what yet. But it's hard now. that. Um, <laughs> Florida is starting to ease back in. So we're, now that I'm back in my office, it's not as readily available to me or um, necessarily the right time for me to enjoy. Um, although I will say, I do want to plug a great brewery. Um, I had my first draft beer last weekend, uh, took a road trip up to visit family in Atlanta and Monday Night Garage Brewing um, 
had some great social distancing practices with outdoor seating and had my first draft beer in months and um, it was a hazy IPA and it was really good. And I, I missed um, that experience because I do love going and visiting new breweries and trying new things. And, and that's the spirit of um, my partner, Ken and I that talk a lot on here. Um, we do like to share uh, that information with each other and we do a lot of brainstorming at our local breweries. So, um, so we certainly are passionate and that's a hobby of ours. Um, but thank you, Matt, for sharing your voice today um, with us and our viewers. Um, our goal is to foster information sharing each week through News & Brew series. Please tune in each Thursday afternoon for a new episode. You can contact us through our website, jmco.com, and you can email us directly if you have any questions to suggest topics you'd like to see discussed here, um, give us any brew recommendations, or tell us if you'd like to join us for an upcoming episode. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter. Um, Follow, follow me, follow James Moore and company, follow Matt um, for more news as it evolves every day in higher ed and athletics. Um, and we also recommend that you subscribe to Extra Points. It's really delightful read. I almost always laugh um, in every single one. I love your sense of humor. Um, and I love the quality of the story that you share as well. So thanks thank everyone for tuning in and thank you, Matt. Um, hope you have a great day.